Good morning, everyone. It's really good to see you all here today. Thank you very much for coming out to Dundonald Elam Church. We know that there is a huge number of people who are away on holiday today, so <laughs> to be able to see anybody here this morning is, is brilliant, but to see such a good number is very, very encouraging, and we thank you all for coming out. And we appreciate those of you who are joining us online, and we ask that God will, will meet you at your point of need today. My name is Pip, and it really is a privilege to share God's Word with you this morning. Pastor Malcolm is ministering God's Word as we were praying there in Port Stewart Baptist, and then he'll be preaching all over this week at the, the Keswick Convention in Port Stewart. So if you're up that neck of the woods over this week, I know he, he would love to see people pop in, but he would really value very much wherever we find ourselves this week, that we're praying for him. And the wonderful opportunity this week presents to make a difference in so many people's lives. Folks, the, the wider ministry of this church, the wider ministry that the, the pastors of this fellowship have and, and others who are members of this congregation is so significant. Pastor Davy led a team who were ministering in Westport, Ireland over this week, and, and they're going to be giving a report this evening. So it'd be brilliant to have so many of you to come back out again and support the young people and hear what God has been doing through them um, in, in our fellowship there in, in Westport. So the wider ministry that we have here brings such a richness and a depth to the impact of the church here and also increases the significance and, and influence that we have in this nation as well. So whenever somebody is, is preaching away from the church, we really do value your support. So keep Pastor in your prayers this week and, and his family as well. We know that they would appreciate that. So we're continuing on our, our series today looking at Signs of life, symbols of hope, images of Christ in, the, in John's gospel. And for the benefit of any folks who are here, we know of a number of visitors who are here or, or those who are listening online for the first time. In John chapter 20, verse 31, we discover that this gospel of John contains seven signs that were written so that we would believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And so in this series, we're, we're studying the seven signs. It's been really, really encouraging to hear feedback from many of you that you're being blessed and spoken to through this particular series. And we've already looked at Jesus turning water into wine. Last week, we thought about Jesus healing the nobleman's son. And the particular sign that we're going to think about this week is in John chapter five. So if you can look that up, we will read it together. John chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 1. John chapter 5, and we will start reading in verse 1. This is the inspired and the authoritative word of God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda having five porches in these lay a great multitude of sick people blind, lame, paralyzed waiting for the moving of the water for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had had an infirmity 38 years. 
When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not even know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought to kill him all the more because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal <clears throat> with God. Amen. And we know God will add his blessing to this reading from his word. If you're taking notes, the title for this morning's talk is this. Jesus is the real thing. Jesus is the real thing. When I was in Crying Jesus, one of the, the many kids talks that they had that was used was called a taste test. And if I had time, we could have done it this morning and had a bit of fun with that. And basically what the taste test was, there would be four or five glasses, I'm sure you've seen it, four or five glasses set out that would have a different type of cola drink in them. They all looked the same, but they certainly did not taste the same. And then some poor unsuspecting child would be brought out of the congregation and asked to taste. That was never a problem, getting the kids to taste the cola. But they were asked to taste the drinks and to find out what one is the Coca-Cola. And the strap line of Coke, of course, is the real thing. What's the real thing? And there would have been Diet Coke, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, American Cola, that, and that horrible drink, Dr. Pepper. Have you ever tried it? It's absolutely rotten. Pardon me if you're a rep for Dr. Pepper. Because <laughs> there are lots of people out there who love your drink. But the, 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 the kids... <laughs> please, no emails complaining. <laughs> but the kids would come up and they would do the taste test and inevitably they would be able to work out which one was the real thing, which one was the Coca-Cola. And the point of of that was that it illustrated how in Northern Ireland, in our country, there are lots of different ideas about what being a Christian is. They might sound the same, but they might look the same, but there's only one is the real thing. There are some people who say going to church makes you a Christian, or being good living, good living for a living, some people say, 
or giving money to church or, or, or to charity. That is what makes you a Christian. All very noble ideas, but none make us a Christian. None of them are the real thing. It's faith in Jesus Christ that makes us a Christian. And the whole point of this series is to help you and, and me see through these signs in John who Jesus is and the hope that we can have in him. And our prayer is that each of us find Jesus to be the real thing. I like that little taste test that we all taste and see that our God is so good. Now, in our, our, our scripture that we read today, there, there is a lot of things that might be of interest to you. If you're into textual criticism, put up your hand if you're into textual criticism. Tyler, okay, <laughs> this is for you, brother. Um, if you're into that sort of thing, scholars would try to pinpoint, well, what is that feast that Jesus went to in verse 1? Because as they, they plot out the length of his earthly ministry, they, they seem to think that that's particularly important. But it isn't named for us. Some claim that the tense used by John in chapter 2 calls into question the traditional dating, which is about 90 AD, of this gospel. Others get a bit concerned because parts of verse 3 and 4 are not contained in the earliest and best manuscripts that we have. It seems that they were added at a, at a later time. But whilst I, along with Tyler, find textual criticism interesting and important, it's not going to help us in our endeavor today, which is to see the beautiful revelation that this sign gives us of who Jesus Christ is. And I want us to think today about how Jesus is the real thing because he has come to set us free. And secondly, Jesus is the real thing because he is full of compassion. So our first point today, Jesus is the real thing because he has come to set us free. We're going to think about the second half of this story first. And for good reason, if you look at verse nine, you see that it says this. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. The reference to the Sabbath there is very deliberate and it provokes us to ask the question, is this the real point behind this particular sign? And yes, there are lessons that we can learn from the man's healing as we'll think about in, in just a, a minute or two. But the fact that John records this healing took place on the Sabbath. Let's just see that this is crucially important to the revelation of this sign. It's almost like we're supposed to go, oh no, what is coming next? Because it perfectly sets up the second part or the second scene of this story, which is one of conflict. But what a healing took place that day. What a phenomenal healing. An infirm man with an incurable disease for 38 years, was suddenly walking and carrying his mat that he'd been lying on. It was an outstanding miracle. Surely everybody would be delighted. This was a, a great occasion to be full of joy and, and full of celebration and thanksgiving, but not the Jewish leaders. In verse 10, when John writes the Jews, he is specifically referring to Jewish leaders, not to all of the Jews who were in Jerusalem at that time. They were not happy at all. And the first thing they say to this man was, it is the Sabbath. You are not allowed by law to carry your bed. 
I just find that phenomenal. Instead of being full of awe and wonder and thanksgiving for the remarkable impact this miracle had had upon this guy's life and how he had been cured, they criticized him for carrying his bed that he had been lying on for 38 years on the Sabbath and say that he was breaking Jewish law. Now, the law that they referred to is not actually in Scripture. It is law that they had introduced due to their interpretation of Old Testament commands surrounding the Sabbath. And the heavy regulations that they introduced missed the whole point of the Sabbath and turned it into something that it was not. Rabbis developed oral traditions and they introduced 39 different activities which are all included in the the Mishnah Shabbat. An interpretation of these activities was very subjective and became burdensome to the point that they said things like, it is not permitted for you to wear false teeth on the Sabbath. I'm sure that was particularly of great interest during Sabbath services in the synagogue. They say things like, you can eat radishes if you want on the Sabbath, but do not dip them in salt. Because you might leave them in too long and they might pickle. That was considered Sabbath breaking. Actually, Pharisees had discussions to see how long it would take to pickle <laughs> to pickle a radish. It's ridiculous. And rabbis also said to people, you can you're not permitted on the Sabbath to carry anything from one domain to another. So this poor man, who Jesus deliberately asked to carry his mat, was in their eyes in violation of the Sabbath, a breaking of oral traditions, not of Old Testament law. And they were so bound up with these religious rules that they could not even be happy for this poor man. But before we tut-tut at the Pharisees about religious rules that are not in Scripture. What about Christians who used to tie up kids' swings on the Sabbath, on the Sunday, in case they might play on them? What about those who insist that you have to wear a suit or a hat to church? What about those who insist you cannot watch television on a Sunday, especially that demonic football? Why are we more known in the church for what we're against actually than for what we're for? Legalism. It's one of the big reasons that turns people off our faith and quickly. In fact, these guys were so passionate for their rules. So passionate that the reason Scripture gives us that they wanted to kill Jesus was because he did these things on the Sabbath. That was one of the great reasons why they wanted to kill Jesus Christ. And Jesus regularly and he deliberately did so to highlight the absurdity, the futility and the hypocrisy of it all. Burdens and man-made rules that could only deal with the external appearances. But Jesus Christ, he had come to deal with the heart that these rules could not deal with. He had come not to condemn the world, but to set it free. He had come not to introduce us to burdensome rules, but to set us free. And his death on the cross gave us life. 
Yes, there are instructions in Scripture as to how you and I should live, but they're not to burden us. They're to set us free so that you and I can know, love, and live for Jesus Christ. Jesus walked all over these religious traditions, and he ignored the massive regulations on a Sabbath to bring God's heart for the Sabbath back, but also to deliberately stir up conflict with the religious elite. Make no doubt about that. He deliberately stirred up conflict with the religious elite because he knew that the encounter would give him a platform and a great opportunity to reveal who exactly he was. And boy, did he take this opportunity. Why else would he ask that man to carry his mat? It was deliberate and his defense was shattering. Basically what Jesus said here was that his father God worked on the Sabbath and so did he. And you would not have need, needed to have been a scholarly Jew to work out exactly the full force of that particular statement. He used conflict on the Sabbath to reveal his identity as the Son of God. And if you read on in John chapter 5, when you get home today, you'll discover lots more glorious claims Jesus made about his Messiahship. But this all sealed his fate. Because not only did they want to kill him now for breaking the Sabbath, they also wanted to kill him for blasphemy, for equating himself with God. What a saviour. He is a real thing. And he has come to set us free. Look at the stark contrast between the heart of Christ and the hard heart of the religious elite. I wonder do people see a similar comparison today when they look at Jesus and then look at his church. But to all here today who are not yet Christians, we're so glad you're here. And the cry of our heart is, please do not let man put you off Jesus Christ. He has come to set you free. Free from what? Well, it's not freedom from the difficulties of life, the circumstances of life that try us. It's not freedom from sickness or financial difficulties or relational difficulties. It's not even freedom from conflict. Jesus had conflict. And if we follow him, you and I, we will have conflict in the world too. But Jesus Christ has come to set us free from sin and its consequences and bring us into this life-giving relationship with God. He has come to help us not see that we have to do anything in this regard He's come to free us from the man-made expectations that people try to, to do and work through to get to God, which just give this thin veneer of respectability but do nothing to heal the heart. He's come to give you the most incredible relationship with God. Would you like that relationship? Well, look to Jesus and his finished work on the cross and how he can set you free because we're revealed today again that he's the Messiah. He's the son of God. He's the real thing, not some fake religious idea. He's the real thing. If you're interested, listen on because there's so much more in this scripture about Jesus. Second point today is this. Jesus is the real thing because he is full of compassion. It's a, it's a wonderfully interesting scene in John chapter five. The pool called Bethesda. In, in Hebrew, that basically means house of mercy or house of outpouring. 
And the Bible tells us that a great multitude of sick people came regularly to this house of outpouring. There are some indications that the waters may well have been red because of the, the minerals in them, hence why people maybe thought that the, they had medicinal value. But it is very clear from our scripture that every now and again something caused these waters to bubble, to, to stir. It's not clear what. Most people think that there were subterranean streams that every now and again bubbled up and then that's what caused the water to bubble. But the later inclusion than when John wrote the gospel of verses three and four is good because it helps us understand that belief amongst this multitude of sick people was due to a certain reason. Without this inclusion, verse seven of this scripture makes no sense to us at all. They believed that an angel caused the disturbance and that once the waters were stirred first in, they would get healed. Verse four seems to imply that some people did get healed, but I read that more as an explanation of what the people thought regarding the water stirring. But how the pool worked is not essential. The fact that Jesus worked is essential and he's the real thing. And we're introduced to this unnamed man who'd been infirm for five years longer than Jesus actually walked on this earth. And here he was at the house of outpouring, hoping that he might get into the pool for his healing. I wonder how long he had sat at that pool. Long enough for his hope to be very disappointed. I wonder how many times he watched others jump into a pool that he could not jump into. But this particular day, everything changed. Everything changed because Jesus, the living water, came to this pool. And this sick man who stirred at a pool waiting for bubbles suddenly stirred at compassion that offered him a different way and a different option. The hopelessness of this man's situation was met with hope because Jesus is the real thing and he's full of compassion. He's the friend of the friendless. I wonder if you lost hope today. I wonder if you've been hanging around the same old pool, whatever that might refer to in your life. Have you been hanging around that same old pool for many years, wondering if something's going to change? But you're broken inside today because your situation has not. Jesus Christ is full of compassion. And he moves towards us today. Look at the compassion of Christ in this story. Isn't it lovely that it was Jesus took the initiative to come to this man? just like he did with the Samaritan woman, chapter four. This man wasn't actually looking for Jesus. Jesus came to him. He took the initiative. He went to the pool and he found him. This guy could not get into the pool, but Jesus got to him because he's full of compassion and his compassion always moves him towards need. Christ's compassion always moves him towards need, not comfort and the cross 
proves that without a shadow of a doubt. Your greatest need, my greatest need is forgiveness of our sin. But he was the one who took the initiative because of his compassion for us to move towards that cross and to hang there for our sin so that we could be set free. Jesus always takes the initiative and he moves towards brokenness and those who are aware of sin. Isn't it lovely that verse 6 tells us that Jesus not only moved towards this man, but he also knew him. The word knew there implies supernatural knowledge. Jesus is God and he knows all things. The Bible says that God discerns our thoughts from afar. That before a word is on our tongue, he knows it completely. God knows all things and Jesus knew everything about this man's helplessness and hopelessness. But he still went to him. He knew that this man would not know everything about who he was, but he still went to him. He knew that the man would not be particularly grateful for what actually happened to him and seemingly later in the story betray him to the religious authorities, but he still went to him and took the initiative. Now, we could look at this story and we could ask, Is there, was there not somebody else in the multitude that day who was more deserving Could he not have made a better choice in that multitude? But this is a part of the sign and the revelation of it. It helps us see today that the hope of Jesus is not dependent on our faithfulness, on our perfection, on our brilliance, on our sinlessness. It's not even dependent on our great faith. It's not even dependent on how much or how little knowledge we have of God today. It's fully dependent on God who fully knows us and what we're like, what we're going through, and yet he still takes the initiative to come to us this morning with his offer of hope because he's full of compassion. Isn't it lovely? And in his compassion, Jesus had the power to transform this man's life. Do you want to be made well? What a question to ask this guy. Maybe it's not as strange as it seems. The man had waited for 38 years and hope could well have died and left behind a a passive and dull despair in his heart. He might have lost hope that his situation could change. Now, whilst most who are ill desperately want to get well, not everyone does. Some want to remain dependent on others or the state. Some may be reluctant to leave the familiar to explore new opportunities. So this is not altogether a strange question to ask the man. And it got his attention, which surely was the reason behind it. And instead of us hearing this resounding, yes, I want to be well, we hear an excuse. We actually hear the man getting cross. He brings a complaint. I do not have anyone to put me into the water. And every time the water stirs, I try to get somebody gets in in front of me. He explained why he could not get healed and he blamed others. Now, if we are ever tempted to think, ever tempted to think that God's healing depends on the quality or the quantity of a person's faith, this passage offers a strong corrective. The man showed no sign of faith in Jesus Christ. He did not even ask to be healed. In fact, as we find out later in the story, he did not even know who Jesus was. They didn't even know who he particularly was, but Jesus knew him. 
He is full of compassion. He had the power to transform that man's life. And instead of helping him into the pool, he said, rise, get up, take up your mat and walk. And the Bible says immediately, at once, it's, it's a word that signifies the, the immediacy of Christ's power. It's like last week when he, he said the words and the nobleman's son was healed at that very time in another part of the city. The power, the power of Christ. I wonder, do you know this Jesus who is the real thing? Are you a Christian? Have you felt for many years that you could not become one because you felt unworthy or that there are others who are more deserving? My friend, none of us are deserving. None of us are worthy of the love of God. But this morning, Jesus Christ knows you. He knows your name. He knows your situation. He knows everything that you're going through. But in love, he comes to you afresh. It doesn't matter how much or how little you know about God. That's not a stumbling block. He comes to you afresh this morning. He takes the initiative. You might have came here, but Jesus knew you'd be here. You're not here by accident. And he takes the initiative through his word to come to you afresh by the power of the Spirit and reveal what a wonderful Savior he is and what a wonderful hope you can know in your heart. He's full of compassion. It does not matter what you've done in your life. That thing that you feel God could never forgive you, why would he go through what he did on the cross if he couldn't forgive it? He can forgive it. He desperately wants to forgive it because he's full of compassion. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But I wonder maybe for, for many of us, here today, do we feel a little bit like we're in the crowd or the multitude that day in chapter 5? Multitudes of sick people, but Jesus was clearly not going to hold a healing crusade. He healed one person from the multitude. I wonder, do you feel like you are lost in the crowd and that you have been forgotten? Yeah, you try to be happy for others when they get a touch from God. But what about your brokenness? What about your pain? What about your marriage? What about your illness or situation? You feel lost in the crowd with all your need forgotten. You feel that because of the noise of the crowd, maybe God could not hear you. Do you think for one minute that Jesus, as the all-knowing God, did not know everyone in that crowd by name? Do you think his power and knowledge was only limited to that one person? No. Of course he knew everybody in that crowd by name. Of course he would have wept for the infirmities that were there too. But as we heard last week, powerfully in the providence of God, not everyone who is sick receives that touch they long for from God. This is the great reason why Jesus compassionately came to this world, not to leave us alone in the crowd without hope, but to bring us back to God and to give us that hope that if not today, well then when Jesus returns, all things will be made well. And yes, it can seem like we're continually sitting beside the pool, not receiving. But never doubt this. God is working out his purposes in your life. You are not lost in the crowd. 
I have called you by name. You are mine. That is what God says to you this morning through his word. And in compassion, he takes that initiative and he comes to us again today with fresh hope because he's the real thing. He knows and he cares what you're going through. But how will you respond? Please open up your heart again. Please open up your heart again to his compassion and the hope he brings today and for eternity. He knows our failure. He knows our brokenness. Yet he comes to us afresh. No situation catches Jesus unaware. There's nothing in your life that ever brings him to the edge of that throne in heaven looking down. I wasn't expecting that. He knows everything. And before anything happens, good or bad, He's there. He's taken the initiative to come to us with his hope. Can we put our trust in God afresh? He sees the big picture and holds it in his hands. He's the real thing. He's no pale imitation, imitation today. He's full of compassion. And I believe he can give us the gift of faith to put our trust in him. Even if it feels like we're just holding on, he can give us the faith to get through what we're going through today. Amazing sign. Points us to the reality of Jesus again, the real thing, the Messiah who's come to set us free from sin to know God. Today, we are not offered a dead religion, but a life-giving relationship. We're not offered bubbles in a pool. We're offered living water. We're not offered superstition. We're offered reality because Jesus Christ is the Messiah whose compassion is so great that he comes to us afresh wherever we are in our life's journey today, whose knowledge of us is so complete and whose power is so sovereign What a phenomenal God. Amen. And what we're going to to do, and maybe Alan, if if we could let the the folks in Arrows know they're going to join us for the the communion, time of communion, and if the the worship team could maybe join us. It's lovely that we we have this time every week to respond to God's word, to, to even have a few minutes of silence as well as worship as we sing together and pray together. But to have a few minutes to contemplate and say, well, God, well, what, what does that message say to me now and in and, and my situation? And it, and it always gives us the opportunity to respond and respond in the way we give our, our lives. And as we, we come around this communion table today, how are you going to respond? Do you need to become a Christian? And if you do, why not? make that decision now and say, Jesus, come into my life. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. And join us at the communion table. Some wonder, why did Jesus heal this guy and then disappear? Was he only worried about his physical situation? Well, no, clearly not, because later it says he came to him again and he spoke to him about his sin. He knows you. Will you call out to him today? The salvation is free. You've listened so well this morning. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. All we need to do is freely accept it. Maybe you want to do that today. But for those of us who feel left in the crowd, as we come around the table and and these particular symbols, we remember what Jesus has done for us. Full of compassion. He's the real deal. He's the real thing. 
And these symbols remind us of hope and love. The body of Jesus that was broken for us. The blood of Christ that was shed on, on a cross as the, so that we can find forgiveness for all of our sins. Please remember that Jesus Christ is not aloof from the sufferings that maybe you're going through. He didn't remain aloof from us. He became one of us so that he could share in our sufferings. He knows and he cares and he loves very much so. And if the servers could come forward and, and the, the elders could help give out the, the, the emblems, that would be wonderful. But as these are given out and as there's music played in the background, please take these few minutes to thank God. Thank God he knows you by name. Thank God he knows you by name. Thank God you're not lost in the crowd today, that he knows your situation and he cares very much so. You're precious to him. Thank God that he takes the initiative and he comes to you again today with hope. As we remember this body that was broken for us, will we open up our hearts again to this love? Thank you.